Chapter Fifteen, Part Three of the Rainbow. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Rainbow by D. H. Lawrence. Chapter Fifteen, Part Three. They were possessed, perfectly and supremely free. They felt proud beyond all question. And surpassing mortal conditions. They were perfect, therefore nothing else existed. The world was a world of servants whom one civilly ignored. Wherever they went, they were the sensuous aristocrats, warm, bright, glancing with pure pride of the senses. The effect upon other people was extraordinary. The glamour was cast from the young couple upon all they came into contact with, waiters or chance acquaintances. "'Oui, monsieur le baron,' she would reply with a mocking courtesy to her husband. So they came to be treated as titled people. He was an officer in the engineers. They were just married, going to India immediately. Thus a tissue of romance was round them. She believed she was a young wife of a titled husband on the eve of departure for India. This, the social fact, was a delicious make-belief. The living fact was that he and she were man and woman, absolute and beyond all limitation. The days went by. They were to have three weeks together in perfect success. All the time they themselves were reality. All outside was tribute to them. They were quite careless about money, but they did nothing very extravagant. He was rather surprised when he found that he had spent twenty pounds in a little under a week. But it was only the irritation of having to go to the bank. The machinery of the old system lasted for him, not the system. The money simply did not exist. Neither did any of the old obligations. They came home from the theatre, had supper, then flitted about in their dressing gowns. They had a large bedroom and a corner sitting room high up, remote and very cosy. They ate all their meals in their own rooms, attended by a young German called Hans, who thought them both wonderful, and answered assiduously, "Guis Herr Baron, Bitzer, Frau Baronin." Often they saw the pink of dawn away across the park. The tower of Westminster Cathedral was emerging. The lamps of Piccadilly, stringing away beside the trees of the park, were becoming pale and moth-like. The morning traffic was clock-clocking down the shadowy road, which had gleamed all night like metal down below, running far ahead into the night beneath the lamps, and which was now vague as in a mist because of the dawn. Then, as the flush of dawn became stronger, they opened the glass doors and went on to the giddy balcony, feeling triumphant as two angels in bliss, looking down at the still sleeping world. Which would wake to a dutiful, rumbling, sluggish turmoil of unreality. But the air was cold. They went into their bedroom and bathed before going to bed, leaving the partition doors of the bathroom open, so that the vapor came into the bedroom and faintly dimmed the mirror. She was always in bed first. She watched him as he bathed, his quick, unconscious movements, the electric light glinting on his wet shoulders. He stood out of the bath, his hair all washed flat over his forehead, and pressed the water out of his eyes. He was slender and to her perfect, a clean, straight-cut youth without a grain of superfluous body. 
The brown hair on his body was soft and fine and adorable. He was all beautifully flushed as he stood in the white bath apartment. He saw her warm, dark, lit-up face watching him from the pillow. Yet he did not see it. It was always present, and was to him as his own eyes. He was never aware of the separate being of her. She was like his own eyes and his own heart beating to him. So he went across to her to get his sleeping suit. It was always a perfect adventure to go near to her. She put her arms round him and snuffed his warm, softened skin. Scent, she said. Soap, he answered. Soap, she repeated, looking up with bright eyes. They were both laughing, always laughing. Soon they were fast asleep. Asleep till midday, close together, sleeping one sleep. Then they awoke to the ever-changing reality of their state. They alone inhabited the world of reality. All the rest lived on a lower sphere. Whatever they wanted to do, they did. They saw a few people, Dorothy, whose guest she was supposed to be, and a couple of friends of Skrebensky, young Oxford men, who called her Mrs. Skrebensky with entire simplicity. They treated her, indeed, with such respect that she began to think she was really quite of the whole universe, of the old world as well as of the new. She forgot she was outside the pale of the old world. She thought she had brought it under the spell of her own real world, and so she had. In such ever-changing reality the weeks went by. All the time they were an unknown world to each other. Every movement made by the one was a reality and an adventure to the other. They did not want outside excitements. They went to very few theatres. They were often in their sitting-room high up over Piccadilly, with windows open on two sides and the door open on to the balcony, looking over the green park or down upon the minute travelling of the traffic. Then, suddenly, looking at a sunset, she wanted to go. She must be gone. She must be gone at once, and in two hours' time they were at Charing Cross taking train for Paris. Paris was his suggestion. She did not care where it was. The great joy was in setting out, and for a few days she was happy in the novelty of Paris. Then, for some reason, she must call in ruin on the way back to London. He had an instinctive mistrust of her desire for the place, but perversely she wanted to go there. It was as if she wanted to try its effect upon her. For the first time, in ruin, he had a cold feeling of death, not afraid of any other man, but of her. She seemed to leave him. She followed after something that was not him. She did not want him. The old streets, the cathedral, the age, and the monumental peace of the town took her away from him. She turned to it as if to something she had forgotten and wanted. This was now the reality, this great stone cathedral slumbering there in its mass, which knew no transience nor heard any denial. It was majestic in its stability, its splendid absoluteness. Her soul began to run by itself. He did not realize, nor did she. Yet in ruin he had the first deadly anguish, the first sense of the death towards which they were wandering, and she felt the first heavy yearning, heavy, heavy, hopeless warning, almost like a deep, uneasy sinking into apathy, hopelessness. They returned to London, but still they had two days. He began to tremble. 
he grew feverish with the fear of her departure. She had in her some fatal prescience that made her calm. What would be would be. He remained fairly easy, however, still in his state of heightened glamour, till she had gone, and he had turned away from St. Pancras, and sat on the tram-car going up Pimlico to the Angel, to Moorgate Street on Sunday evening. Then the cold horror gradually soaked into him. He saw the horror of the city road. He realized the ghastly cold sordidness of the tram-car in which he sat. Cold, stark, ashen sterility had him surrounded. Where, then, was the luminous, wonderful world he belonged to by rights? How did he come to be thrown on this refuse heap where he was? He was as if mad. The horror of the brick buildings, of the tram-car, of the ashen-gray people in the street, made him reeling and blind as if drunk. He went mad. He had lived with her in a close, living, pulsing world, where everything pulsed with rich being. Now he found himself struggling amid an ashen-dry, cold world of rigidity, dead walls and mechanical traffic, and creeping spectre-like people. The life was extinct. Only ash moved and stirred, or stood rigid. There was a horrible clattering activity, a rattle like the falling of dry slag, cold and sterile. It was as if the sunshine that fell were unnatural light exposing the ash of the town, as if the lights at night were the sinister gleam of decomposition. Quite mad, beside himself, he went to his club and sat with a glass of whiskey, motionless, as if turned to clay. He felt like a corpse that is inhabited with just enough life to make it appear as any other of the spectral, unliving beings which we call people in our dead language. Her absence was worse than pain to him. It destroyed his being. Dead, he went on from lunch to tea. His face was all the time fixed and stiff and colourless. His life was a dry mechanical movement. Yet even he wondered slightly at the awful misery that had overcome him. How could he be so ash-like and extinct? He wrote her a letter. I have been thinking that we must get married before long. My pay will be more when I get out to India. We shall be able to get along. Or if you don't want to go to India, I could very probably stay here in England. But I think you would like India. You could ride, and you would know just everybody out there. Perhaps if you stay on to take your degree, we might marry immediately after that. I will write to your father as soon as I hear from you. He went on disposing of her. If only he could be with her. All he wanted now was to marry her, to be sure of her. Yet all the time he was perfectly, perfectly hopeless, cold, extinct, without emotion or connection. He felt as if his life were dead. His soul was extinct. The whole being of him had become sterile. He was a spectre, divorced from life. He had no fullness. He was just a flat shape. Day by day the madness accumulated in him. The horror of not being possessed him. He went here, there, and everywhere, but whatever he did he knew that only the cipher of him was there. Nothing was filled in. He went to the theatre. What he heard and saw fell upon a cold surface of consciousness, which was now all that he was. There was nothing behind it. He could have no experience of any sort. Mechanical registering took place in him, no more. He had no being, no contents. Neither had the people he came into contact with. They were mere permutations of known quantities. 
There was no roundness or fullness in this world he now inhabited. Everything was a dead-shaped mental arrangement, without life or being. Much of the time he was with friends and comrades. Then he forgot everything. Their activities made up for his own negation. They engaged his negative horror. He only became happy when he drank, and he drank a good deal. Then he was just the opposite to what he had been. He became a warm, diffuse, glowing cloud in a warm, diffuse, formless fashion. Everything melted down into a rosy glow, and he was the glow, and everything was the glow, everybody else was the glow, and it was very nice, very nice. He would sing songs, it was so nice. Ursula went back to Beldover, shut and firm. She loved Skrebensky, of that she was resolved. She would allow nothing else. She read his long, obsessed letter about getting married and going to India without any particular response. She seemed to ignore what he said about marriage. It did not come home to her. He seemed, throughout the greater part of his letter, to be talking without much meaning. She replied to him pleasantly and easily. She rarely wrote long letters. "'India sounds lovely. I can just see myself on an elephant, swaying between lanes of obsequious natives.' "'but I don't know if Father would let me go. We must see. "'I keep living over again the lovely times we have had, "'but I don't think you liked me quite so much towards the end, did you? "'You did not like me when we left Paris. "'Why didn't you? "'I love you very much. I love your body. It is so clear and fine. "'I am glad you do not go naked or all the women would fall in love with you. "'I am very jealous of it. I love it so much.' He was more or less satisfied with this letter, but day after day he was walking about, dead, non-existent. He could not come again to Nottingham until the end of April. Then he persuaded her to go with him for a weekend to a friend's house near Oxford. By this time they were engaged. He had written to her father, and the thing was settled. He brought her an emerald ring, of which she was very proud." Her people treated her now with a little distance, as if she had already left them. They left her very much alone. She went with him for the three days in the country house near Oxford. It was delicious, and she was very happy. But the thing she remembered most was when, getting up in the morning after he had gone back quietly to his own room, having spent the night with her, she found herself very rich in being alone. And enjoying to the full her solitary room, she drew up her blind and saw the plum-trees in the garden below, all glittering and snowy, and delighted with the sunshine, in full bloom under a blue sky. They threw out their blossom, they flung it out under the blue heavens, the whitest blossom. How excited it made her! She had to hurry through her dressing to go and walk in the garden under the plum-trees, before anyone should come and talk to her. Out she slipped and paced like a queen in fairy pleasances. The blossom was silvery shadowy when she looked up from under the tree at the blue sky. There was a faint scent, a faint noise of bees, a wonderful quickness of happy morning. She heard the breakfast gong and went indoors. "'Where have you been?' asked the others. "'I had to go out under the plum-trees,' she said, her face glowing like a flower. "'It is so lovely.' A shadow of anger crossed Skrebensky's soul. She had not wanted him to be there. He hardened his will. At night there was a moon, and the blossom glistened ghostly. They went together to look at it. 
She saw the moonlight on his face as he waited near her, and his features were like silver, and his eyes in shadow were unfathomable. She was in love with him. He was very quiet. They went indoors, and she pretended to be tired, so she went quickly to bed. "'Don't be long coming to me,' she whispered, as she was supposed to be kissing him good night. And he waited, intent, obsessed, for the moment when he could come to her. She enjoyed him. She made much of him. She liked to put her fingers on the soft skin of his sides or on the softness of his back when he made the muscles hard underneath. The muscles developed very strong through riding. And she had a great thrill of excitement and passion because of the unimpressible hardness of his body that was so soft and smooth under her fingers that came to her with such absolute service. She owned his body, and enjoyed it with all the delight and carelessness of a possessor. But he had become gradually afraid of her body. He wanted her. He wanted her endlessly. But there had come a tension into his desire, a constraint which prevented his enjoying the delicious approach and the lovable close of the endless embrace. He was afraid. His will was always tense, fixed. Her final examination was at midsummer. She insisted on sitting for it, although she had neglected her work during the past months. He also wanted her to go in for the degree. Then, he thought, she would be satisfied. Secretly, he hoped she would fail, so that she would be more glad of him. "'Would you rather live in India or in England when we are married?' he asked her. "'Oh, in India by far,' she said, with a careless lack of consideration which annoyed him. Once, she said with heat, I shall be glad to leave England. Everything is so meagre and paltry. It is so unspiritual. I hate democracy. He became angry to hear her talk like this. He did not know why. Somehow he could not bear it when she attacked things. It was as if she were attacking him. What do you mean? he asked her, hostile. Why do you hate democracy? Only the greedy and ugly people come to the top in a democracy, she said. "'because they're the only people who will push themselves there. "'Only degenerate races are democratic.' "'What do you want, then, an aristocracy?' he asked, secretly moved. "'He always felt that by rights he belonged to the ruling aristocracy. "'Yet to hear her speak for his class pained him with a curious, painful pleasure. "'He felt he was acquiescing in something illegal, "'taking to himself some wrong, reprehensible advantages.' "'I do want an aristocracy,' she cried. "'And I'd far rather have an aristocracy of birth than of money. "'Who are the aristocrats now? "'Who are chosen as the best to rule? "'Those who have money and the brains for money. "'It doesn't matter what else they have, "'but they must have money, brains, "'because they are ruling in the name of money.' "'The people elect the government,' he said. "'I know they do, but what are the people?' Each one of them is a money interest. I hate it that anybody is my equal who has the same amount of money as I have. I know I am better than all of them. I hate them. They are not my equals. I hate equality on a money basis. It is the equality of dirt. Her eyes blazed at him. He felt as if she wanted to destroy him. She had gripped him and was trying to break him. His anger sprang up against her. At least he would fight for his existence with her. A hard, blind resistance possessed him. "'I don't care about money,' he said. "'Neither do I want to put my finger in the pie. I am too sensitive about my finger.' 
"'What is your finger to me?' she cried in a passion. "'You, with your dainty fingers, and you're going to India because you will be one of the somebodies there. "'It's a mere dodge you're going to India.' "'In what way a dodge?' he cried, white with anger and fear. "'You think the Indians are simpler than us, and so you'll enjoy being near them and being a lord over them,' she said. "'And you'll feel so righteous, governing them for their own good. "'Who are you to feel righteous?' "'What are you righteous about in your governing? "'Your governing stinks. "'What do you govern for but to make things there "'as dead and mean as they are here?' "'I don't feel righteous in the least,' he said. "'Then what do you feel? "'It's all such a nothingness, "'what you feel and what you don't feel. "'What do you feel yourself?' he said. "'Aren't you righteous in your own mind?' "'Yes, I am, because I'm against you "'and all your old dead things,' she cried." She seemed, with the last words, uttered in hard knowledge, to strike down the flag that he kept flying. He felt cut off at the knees, a figure made worthless. A horrible sickness gripped him, as if his legs were really cut away, and he could not move, but remained a crippled trunk, dependent, worthless. The ghastly sense of helplessness, as if he were a mere figure that did not exist vitally, made him mad, beside himself. Now, even whilst he was with her, this death of himself came over him, when he walked about like a body from which all individual life is gone. In this state he neither heard nor saw nor felt, only the mechanism of his life continued. He hated her as far as in this state he could hate. His cunning suggested to him all the ways of making her esteem him, for she did not esteem him. He left her and did not write to her. He flirted with other women, with Gudrun. This last made her very fierce. She was still fiercely jealous of his body. In passionate anger she upbraided him, because, not being man enough to satisfy one woman, he hung round others. "'Don't I satisfy you?' he asked of her, again going white to the throat. "'No,' she said. "'You've never satisfied me since the first week in London. You never satisfy me now. What does it mean to me, your having me?' She lifted her shoulders and turned aside her face in a motion of cold, indifferent worthlessness. He felt he would kill her. When she had roused him to a pitch of madness, when she saw his eyes all dark and mad with suffering, then a great suffering overcame her soul, a great inconquerable suffering, and she loved him. For, oh, she wanted to love him. Stronger than life or death was her craving to be able to love him. And at such moments, when he was made with her destroying him, when all his complacency was destroyed, all his everyday self was broken, and only the stripped, rudimentary, primal man remained, demented with torture, her passion to love him became love. She took him again. They came together in an overwhelming passion, in which he knew he satisfied her. But it all contained a developing germ of death. After each contact— her anguished desire for him, or for that which she never had from him, was stronger. Her love was more hopeless. After each contact, his mad dependence on her was deepened. His hope of standing strong and taking her in his own strength was weakened. He felt himself a mere attribute of her. Whitsuntide came just before her examination. She was to have a few days of rest— Dorothy had inherited her patrimony and had taken a cottage in Sussex. She invited them to stay with her. 
They went down to Dorothy's neat, low cottage at the foot of the downs. Here they could do as they liked. Ursula was always yearning to go to the top of the downs. The white track wound up to the rounded summit, and she must go. Up there she could see the channel a few miles away, the sea raised up and faintly glittering in the sky, the Isle of White, a shadow, lifted in the far distance, the river winding bright through the patterned plain to seaward, Arundel Castle, a shadowy bulk, and then the rolling of the high smooth downs, making a high smooth land under heaven, acknowledging only the heavens in their great sun-glowing strength, and suffering only a few bushes to trespass on the intercourse between their great unabatable body and the changeful body of the sky. Below she saw the villages and the woods of the Weald, and the train running bravely, a gallant little thing running with all the importance of the world over the water-meadows and into the gap of the downs, waving its white steam, yet all the while so little— so little, yet its courage carried it from end to end of the earth, till there was no place where it did not go. Yet the downs, in magnificent indifference, bearing limbs and body to the sun, drinking sunshine and sea-wind and sea-wet cloud into its golden skin, with superb stillness and calm of being, was not the downs still more wonderful? The blind, pathetic, energetic courage of the train, as it steamed tinily away through the patterned levels to the sea's dimness, so fast and so energetic, made her weep. Where was it going? It was going nowhere. It was just going. So blind, so without goal or aim, yet so hasty. She sat on an old prehistoric earthwork and cried, and the tears ran down her face. The train had tunnelled all the earth, blindly and uglily. And she lay face downwards on the downs that were so strong, that cared only for their intercourse with the everlasting skies, and she wished she could become a strong mound, smooth under the sky, bosom and limbs bared to all winds and clouds and bursts of sunshine. But she must get up again, and look down from her foothold of sunshine, down and away at the patterned level earth with its villages and its smoke and its energy. So short-sighted the train seemed, running to the distance, so terrifying in their littleness the villages with such pettiness in their activity. Skrebensky wandered dazed, not knowing where he was or what he was doing with her. All her passion seemed to be to wander up there on the downs, and when she must descend to earth she was heavy, up there she was exhilarated and free. She would not love him in a house any more. She said she hated houses, and particularly she hated beds. There was something distasteful in his coming to her bed. She would stay the night on the downs, up there, he with her. It was midsummer. The days were glamorously long. At about half-past ten, when the bluey-black darkness had at last fallen, they took rugs and climbed the steep track to the summit of the downs, he and she. Up there the stars were big, the earth below was gone into darkness. She was free up there with the stars. Far out they saw tiny yellow lights, but it was very far out, at sea or on land. She was free up among the stars. She took off her clothes and made him take off all his, and they ran over the smooth, moonless turf, a long way, more than a mile from where they had left their clothing, 
running in the dark, soft wind, utterly naked, as naked as the downs themselves. Her hair was loose and blew about her shoulders. She ran swiftly, wearing sandals when she set off on the long run to the dew-pond. In the round dew-pond the stars were untroubled. She ventured softly into the water, grasping at the stars with her hands. And then suddenly she started back, running swiftly. He was there beside her, but only on sufferance. He was a screen for her fears. He served her. She took him, she clasped him, clenched him close, but her eyes were open, looking at the stars. It was as if the stars were lying with her, and entering the unfathomable darkness of her womb, fathoming her at last. It was not him. The dawn came. They stood together on a high place, an earthwork of the Stone Age men, watching for the light. It came over the land, but the land was dark. She watched a pale rim on the sky, away against the darkened land. The darkness became bluer. A little wind was running in from the sea behind. It seemed to be running to the pale rift of the dawn, and she and he, darkly, on an outpost of the darkness, stood watching for the dawn. The light grew stronger, gushing up against the dark sapphire of the transparent night. The light grew stronger, whiter. Then over it hovered a flush of rose, a flush of rose, and then yellow, pale, new-created yellow, the whole quivering and poising momentarily over the fountain on the sky's rim. The rose hovered and quivered, burned, fused to flame, to a transient red, while the yellow urged out in great waves, thrown from the ever-increasing fountain, great waves of yellow flinging into the sky, scattering its spray over the darkness, which became bluer and bluer, paler, till soon it would itself be a radiance which had been darkness. The sun was coming. There was a quivering, a powerful, terrifying swim of molten light. Then the molten source itself surged forth, revealing itself. The sun was in the sky, too powerful to look at. And the ground beneath lay so still, so peaceful. Only now and again a cock crew. Otherwise, from the distant yellow hills to the pine trees at the foot of the downs, everything was newly washed into being, in a flood of new golden creation. It was so unutterably still and perfect with promise, the golden-lighted, distinct land, that Ursula's soul rocked and wept. Suddenly he glanced at her. The tears were running over her cheeks. Her mouth was working strangely. "'What is the matter?' he asked. After a moment's struggle with her voice, "'It is so beautiful,' she said, looking at the glowing, beautiful land. It was so beautiful, so perfect, and so unsullied. He, too, realized what England would be in a few hours' time— a blind, sordid, strenuous activity, all for nothing, fuming with dirty smoke and running trains and groping in the bowels of the earth, all for nothing. A ghastliness came over him. He looked at Ursula. Her face was wet with tears, very bright, like a transfiguration in the refulgent light. Nor was his the hand to wipe away the burning bright tears. He stood apart, overcome by a cruel ineffectuality. Gradually a great helpless sorrow was rising in him, but as yet he was fighting it away. He was struggling for his own life. He became very quiet and unaware of the things about him, 
awaiting, as it were, her judgment on him. End of chapter 15, part 3